Well, that's a good word for us because whether things are good or whether things are hard, whether things feel like crisis or failure or prosperity, there is a redeemer. And that's a super important thing for us to consider is that the story is still being written and the circumstances are still unfolding. And whatever you kind of limp in here today with or skip in here today with, the reality is there is a redeemer who is active. It wasn't like he redeemed something years ago, but there's something um, dynamic about God's presence in our life in all things. And so that's a super important word for us to consider today. And I love, 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 love that song. Um, hey, we have in our community spotlight moment, a super special, really cool thing that happened this week. I don't know how many of you remember a first, uh, a first time moment, but we have a first time high schooler, a freshman who made the baseball team at a very large 6A high school. And this week he had his very first at bat. Uh, uh, at Westlake High School. So congratulations, Chase. Hey. You cannot trust a dad with a phone and the ability to project things. It's, you are not safe here. But we love that you're here. Uh, and so before it got freezing cold, like we're in Michigan or something, uh, we actually got a game in earlier this week and he had his first at bat. So we're pretty excited about that. Uh, hey, uh, we have a very special event coming up, and uh, we are really excited. Uh, there are some friends of ours that are working really hard to make this a special night. Um, it's, it's, you know, we talk about church as worship. We talk about church as tribe. This is one of those moments kind of quarterly where we do kind of combine our tribes, uh, but we want to put our faith and community on display. We want to invite people and make it as accessible as possible. We're going back to Luster Pearl on the east side. This is a really special night, but here's how it works. Uh, it works because you practice hospitality. You extend invites and bring people with you. Um, there are going to be uh, some fun games going on. Uh, there will be uh, some comedy magic. Uh, there'll be great raffles, there's a cash bar, there's uh, some, some good eats, uh, and so please, please, please come, uh, but get your tickets so we can actually know how to plan. That helps us kind of maintain a, an assemblance of a budget, uh, is because we, we, we know people that are coming before 24 hours in advance. So there you go. If you've ever planned a wedding or if you've heard, okay, you understand what's involved with an RSVP thing. Uh, and then uh, I also just want to highlight one other thing that's happening this Saturday. We have this ongoing relationship. For the last two years, I've attended this event. It is the kind of the Chin State, which is like Texas in Myanmar. It's, it's a state in the larger country, but a lot of the people that we're in fellowship with come from the Chin State. Uh, and they do kind of a, 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 it's a big national day party. Most of it is in Burmese. Uh, it's not always that interesting, but what is beautiful is, uh, is the relationships. I went year one and pretty much didn't know anyone except I had met Jonathan at our arcade party uh, as our one-year party. I came back the next year and I started walking through and because I'd been in so many homes, uh, I was starting getting called by name. And it's really fun to be in a sea of Burmese people um, and many of them, I can't even pronounce their name, let alone remember their name, but they knew Pastor David. And um, if you want to go, I'm, I'm planning to go. I'll wear my fun jacket because I feel authenticated with it now. I got a gift. Uh, and uh, Jonathan's actually in charge of it now. Uh, and so it, it's, it's over kind of in, 
east off of 35 uh, at the Asian, uh, Asian Cultural Center or something like that. So next Saturday night, if you want to come for part of that and see some of the uh, Burmese that we've been building relationships with. Well, I don't know how many of you feel like a spiritual giant. I, I don't know how many of you feel like you're walking on water, literally or figuratively, uh, <clears throat> but most of us don't. And that's why one of our rhythms and part of Mission Hills is that we practice apprenticing because the Christian life is much more than you praying a prayer to get saved. You being a Christian, a Christ follower means that you're not only looking to find someone further along so that you can kind of be inspired, you can be motivated, you can be counseled, you can be uh, mentored, but it's also involved in bringing someone along. And even if you don't feel like a spiritual giant, we have the rhythm of apprenticing so that we can practice that. And certainly if you've had kids, whether you feel qualified or confident, you are a spiritual leader. And so our practice is in apprenticing. And so we have a couple of folks, Kathy and Jess, who are going to lead uh, and champion our rhythm of apprenticing tonight as we dismiss our kids to go. Uh, and that's why we look for people to participate in this. So let's just pray over the kids and send them out with, let's send them out with, the, continue their worship with this blessing. The Lord bless you as you continue on in your worship. Kira. Wow. Chase handled that better than you, all that attention. <laughs> and also with you. Okay. Uh, you know, one of those things that happens is we, it's always a little challenge to go and be involved with other people's kids. Uh, but uh, you kind of wonder, wow, uh, it can be a little intimidating, but you just go in and, and you knock it out and you, you figure out how do I find my voice as a spiritual leader? And you're like, well, you know, some of the kids are really rough. Some of the kids... Just ask your kid, are you, like, are there bad kids in there? And, and if they say no, um, no, they're all good, then that probably means your kid is the bad kid. <laughs> is that a bad thing to say? I shouldn't have said that. Okay, sorry. Sorry, I take that back. Just kidding. You. Just keeping it real, folks. Um, uh, there is this phenomenon that happens when we watch uh, a film that has historical implications. And... It's different than if we watch a sporting event. So if you watch a movie uh, that's historical and you're kind of relatively familiar with history, you know how the story ends. I don't know if you've had this experience that you kind of get worked up over a movie and you're following it and there's some good drama unfolding and then you're like reminding yourself, oh, I, will, I, I know how this ends. You know, if you saw like... Uh, like Darkest Hour or Dunkirk or something like that, uh, you, you know history to know that they, they get saved. Uh, you know, the, the, the fleet, come, the lay fleet come and save them, the, the, the sort of uh, lay fleet of Navy fleet. Um, if, if you watch Titanic, you're like, I know that's the last sunset. You know, I mean, it's, they're going down. I, I know how this thing ends. I mean, you know that when, when, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor, you, you understand that people go underwater. I mean, there's just this kind of anticipation, like maybe it'll have a different ending. And you're like, no, I know. I mean, I know when I watch Talladega Nights that he's going to come back. He's going to find his courage and he'll be able to race again. I mean, there's some historical things that you just follow. And you go, I know this to be true. 
This is not the case when we watch sports. Because when we watch sports, we, we get weird. Do, do we not? We get a little anxious. We get superstitious because it's only weird if it doesn't work. Uh, we, you know, we, we dress in the same clothes. Uh, we get worked up um, because we don't know the outcome, right? So it's kind of the beauty of what makes sports sports is that it's going to be a nail biter if it's going to be a good game. Unless it's your team, then you just want to blow out and just enjoy it and laugh and mock. And, but my point is, when we say yes to Jesus, when we have been giving a living word, not a static 2,000-year-old document, we know that the mystery has been revealed. We know how the story ends. We know what's to come. So the question is, why do we live with so much concern and anxiety? Why do we live with so much uncertainty? Why is having a growing, dynamic, burgeoning faith such a problem? Do we believe it? Do we know it? Because if we understand what scripture looks like, uh, or what scripture says, we understand what it will look like in the end. And it's victory. We win in the end. There is the restoration of all things. It does not mean that life is not going to be hard. It does not mean that it's going to be a setbacks and tragedy and crisis. But we know how it ends. And so I want to jump in with this word that comes to us out of um, the beginning part of Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I'm going to encourage you to take notes, but I'm going to encourage you to fire open some kind of Bible, some kind of device that you can follow along, because we're going to inch our way through a couple of passages. And I, I, I did not include them because um, there's just too much text to put up on the screen. So I'm going to want you to follow along with me. And, and this whole series is we choose to zag because there is this cultural norm that zigs and what we're trying to do is create a living faith. We're trying to create a community of faith. We're trying to create a belief that would allow us to zag with purpose. To zag. When the world zigs, we're going to zag. And so part of it, we need to be interrupted with our beliefs. We need to be interrupted with our fears. We need to be interrupted with our regrets. And we need to learn to zag because the world is going to say one thing and, and, and it's contrary to what we know as the fulfilling story of scripture being we win in the end. And so Paul is writing to this young church in Ephesus. And as he's writing to them, He's trying to invite them into this mystery that's been made known. Now, this is a word that's coming not to a prevailing Jewish audience. It's coming to a largely Gentile audience. So fasten your seatbelts because it's like he's writing to us as Gentile believers who are being grafted in to the family of God. Now, he's gone through the first couple of chapters, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, but he gets to chapter three and he has a moment, kind of a put a pin in it moment. Here's what he opens up by saying in chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for your sake, for the sake of uh, the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration uh, of God's grace that was given to me. Now, 
right there, he just kind of jumps into this, this idea uh, for this reason, and he, and he ex- explains, I'm actually writing this from jail, which would normally be a shameful thing. It would normally be sort of a, a scarlet letter, like, oh man, I'm in jail, I'm doing time, except that he states that the reason he's in jail is for the cause of Christ, that he was doing the right thing and is suffering consequences for it really important in your theology to understand that conventional wisdom fails us when we come into a living faith with Christ. Conventional wisdom is not faith. This is a different kind of way of thinking that even though you choose to walk in obedience, even though you try and be faithful as you will, it doesn't always mean reward initially. So it's really easy, and at times I shake my fist at God going, (laughs) keep up with me, God. I'm doing this for you. Why don't you provide this for me? And that's not how God works. Now, what he does here is he pushes a pause button and and he takes a, a sort of divergent path and then he picks up this prayer that we started reading in chapter one. And next week we'll begin in chapter 14 and he continues on this beautifully eloquent prayer. But he goes back to the mystery that's been made known. And I want to talk about the mystery. If you remember, as I talked about, he's writing for the first time in all of his letters, not giving them a correction or rebuke. He's affirming them. And yet he's at the same time praying for them. Because we need to be praying even when it's good not just when it's bad. We don't use prayer simply as crisis management. We use prayer to actually help us navigate even when things are going well. What is it that he's saying they're doing well? Do you remember? They've integrated. They've come together to be one church. For the first time, what we're seeing is this beautiful unfolding of what God's plan was from the very beginning that all people would come into one body. Not just the God of the Jews, but the God of humanity. And so Paul's writing this letter to a Gentile church that, yes, has some Jews there, but it's this metropolitan area of Ephesus uh, where he's saying, you guys are doing it well. And so he talks about this mystery. And so um, and uh, in verses three, uh, begin, uh, continuing in verse three, he says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, he's referring to chapter one. Uh, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it was, made, as it was now revealed by the spirit of God, to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles and their heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So the mystery has been made known. Now we have this idea that we say God works in mysterious ways. Um, But what he's saying is in the gospel, it's for everyone. The mystery includes bringing Gentiles into the fold of God's people. Now, I read that and I go, yeah, that's nothing. I already feel accepted by Christ. I already know Jesus. I already feel like I have this assurance of my salvation. Except what he's saying is, this is a kind of a new thing. Before, if you were part of the non-Jewish crowd, the uncircumcised crowd, then you were not one of us. 
But in Christ, we talked about that phrase being a new identity, you're now part of God's body. And so he makes this case, just because the mystery has been made known, though, doesn't mean we always learn to live with the truth. Just because we know the mystery has been revealed, that you are now in Christ, doesn't mean we can always apply the truth. What does that mean? Well, there are things that I know cognitively. Um, there are things that I know to be true, but I don't always um, let my life reflect what I believe or my heart follows. L let me give you an example. If you go back to um, Acts chapter 10, here's a really good illustration of this between Peter and the Gentiles. And this is just giving you the larger context of what God's been trying to instruct them and us. And I think it's going to be, I'm going to put a real fine point on it and it might get a little uncomfortable, but that's always a good thing, I think. So go with me to, let's just put a pause on Ephesians and Paul um, because the mystery takes a while to accept even though it's been revealed. What's been, what's the mystery? God for everyone. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the idea that God's love has no boundaries, so it's for and intended for everyone. Um, and so uh, if we go over to Acts chapter 10, we have this really interesting narrative that unfolds in this passage. And if you want to really read the depths of it, go to Acts 10 through 14, but I just want to give you a snapshot of it. Now, I'm going to read selected passages, but Cornelius calls for Peter. This is, again, the early church. God's trying to do a new work. This is God trying to reveal the mystery and get through their traditions, get through their culture, get through to their biases, get through to their offenses, get through to them so that they would take steps forward so that God's salvation may be made known. Now, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius calls for Peter. That seems like a, a pretty benign heading, except that it was huge. Listen to this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion uh, in what was known as the Italian regiment. Okay, so who was, who, who was Cornelius? Was he Jewish? No. What was his day job? Soldier. So automatically... He's now a guy who's not one of us, and worse than that, he's a part of the oppressive Roman regime. Except that here's what we learn about Cornelius. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Now, to be praying at three afternoon is to be following a devout Jewish tradition that we pray at that kind of fixed time prayer with God. So here's a Gentile who's working and in the employ of the Roman government and yet he's devout and God-fearing, and he's going to push pause, take a siesta, and pray at three in the afternoon. Now, I don't get to have quiet times like this. My devotions aren't quite as inspired as this, but I aspire to them. Here's what happens in his quiet time during his prayer. He distinctly saw an angel of the Lord who came to him, and he says, Cornelius. And he's like, what is it, Lord? 
the angel says, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to, to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying at Simon the Tanner's whose house is by the sea. And so when the angel had spoke, uh, Cornelius called uh, two of his servants and a devout soldier who, went, who was one of the attendants and he told them everything that had happened and he sent them to Joppa. And he's like, Oh, good God, what is he asking me to do? Well, this is very loaded. We don't understand a lot of the culture. But you start to get an idea of the, mm, the antagonism, of the lack of integration, of sort of the cultural hostility. Peter's vision. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened up like a large sheet being let down to earth in its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Is God talking about food? The voice said to him a second time, do not call anything impure that, is, that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And so while he was wondering about it, these guys show up. So he's waking up and he's scratching his head. And it had happened three times about this sheet coming down and don't call anything that God's made unclean. And then the guys finally arrive. The two servants and the soldiers show up and they're like, um, you're supposed to come back with us. And so he's like, okay uh and so the next day um peter started out with them and some of the brothers from joppa along uh, the following day he arrived at caesarea cornelius was expecting him uh and so he invited together close relatives and friends and as peter entered the house cornelius met him um, and fell at his feet so here's like a guy who's like a centurion over many soldiers and Peter walks in and he takes the place of humility the place of a servant to which Peter's like hey um I'm only a man just get up let's you know that's nice of him but then he says and this is in verse 27 which you kind of want to punch him in the nose but again there's there's culture here but there's some really modern day applications but he's like you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him but God has shown me that I should not call anything uh, or any man impure or unclean so when I was sent for I came without raising objection my I ask why you sent for me okay so Peter responds and he's like, all right. And so now here's a crowded room and he's sort of of the better than race. And he's like, thanks for having me in your home. Don't kneel, but um, you know my kind don't associate with your kind. I mean, he's pulling the us, them card, the we, they. You know I'm not one of you. Why am I here? And so God has this vision and he's trying to bring these people together. And then as, as it would turn out uh, in, in the beginning of uh, chapter 11, uh, the apostles and the brothers uh, throughout Judea heard uh, that the Gentiles had also received the word of the Lord. And so when Peter went back, went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, kind of all the kids from his old youth group were like, what the heck are you doing? 
And he says, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and you ate with them. And Peter began and explained everything to him precisely as it had happened. Uh, and, and he said, and he described the whole prayer and he's like, ah, now we see. Oh my goodness. How offensive is that, right? Like, oh, they're just not very enlightened. They're not, just not very progressive or they're, they're, they're just living in. No, they're just following what had always been done. Now, I want to draw attention to a couple of things. And um, uh, since Peter and Cornelius, um, God was trying to heal race relations back then. And I just want to take a moment to talk about something that's heightened in our culture today and in our society. And it's the idea, uh, and there's lots of different descriptors for it. There's, there's talk of diversity and inclusion, but really it boils down to a race conversation or maybe a race issue. Um, now, if you're like me and you grow up in white, predominantly white, uh, um, evangelical churches, when you start talking about race, you can get lumped into certain categories. You can get lumped into a social gospel category, which is, that's quite taboo. You can get lumped into a liberal theology. Uh, you can get lumped into a political conversation, all of which is in a downward slide away from the authority of God's word. This is not that. I want to be able to talk about some things with you. Um, and I would encourage you, there's a guy, um, a white guy who wrote a book called White Awake. Uh, his name is Daniel Hill. I had the chance to meet Daniel and I was with him on a couple of occasions uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, and he's done some remarkable work because he, like me, grew up in white evangelicalism. And he realized there's really been next to no theology around the idea of race. And so he wrote this book uh, and, and and I thought he did a really good job because the only people speaking about it were in intellectual or, and or academic circles. Now, uh, so a lot of the thoughts I just want to highlight with you are thoughts that I'm borrowing from him and he's way more um, articulate and takes way more time to expand on it. But I simply want to say uh, a couple of things because race is such an issue and we're trying to be a church with, without walls. We're trying to be a church that is very outward in its focus. We're trying to be the church that Jesus would embrace like a New Testament church that crosses social divides economically uh, as well as culturally. And, and it's hard on us as much as it is on them. Uh, when you get involved with cross-cultural ministries, when you get involved with people in different economic groups, there's always this head-scratching moment. There's always an idea of... Um, we're not connecting. And, and, and there just requires a large amount of humility uh, because it's much easier to be around my kind uh, because there's a sort of cultural fluency. But God doesn't call us to that. He calls us to cross social divides. And so let me just frame in a couple of words here and talk about diversity versus race. When we talk about diversity, what we're really talking about is something that God has ordained from the beginning and what we see in these couple of passages that I'm highlighting here. And diversity is this sense of capturing the Imago Dei. It's the idea that all of us bear the image of God, and that is bigger than a cultural statement or an economic one or the color of your skin one. It's the idea that somehow God has created all of us in God's image. 
And so when we come together across social divides, what we're really doing is reconciling the world, reconciling and restoring the world as God intended. Um, now, in the environments that I grew up, and I actually grew up in a more diverse one, uh, our church in San Francisco was, was a bit of a melting pot. There was a lot of uh, uh, kind of Northern European uh, immigrants, but there was also a lot of Hispanic, quite a few Asian. We had African-American. Uh, I have in my family, um, you know, a Dutch Indonesian and uh, Filipino Hispanic. And I mean, this is my family in San Francisco. Um, but this is where you get exposed to it because when you're in a concentrated urban environment like that, you can't spread out very far. The city's only seven square miles, so there's no real suburbs to keep moving out to unless you just want to move out of the city. So I was introduced to something that felt more diverse from the beginning, so it became a little bit of my normal, though I've still had to overcome some of the things uh, that uh, are associated with biases uh, and, and kind of uh, crossing some social divides. Now, um, what I think happens is, is that in most white evangelical circles, we'd all say racism is, is wrong. That's a terrible thing. Except the problem is, is that we're all breathing the same smog. And we don't realize how it's crept in and affected us, our attitudes, or, or maybe our fears towards crossing different divides. Um, uh, and so, there is a couple of verses that I want to share. One is out of, and I have it up on the board, Revelation 7, 9. It says, after I looked, and this is God, uh, John writing about this revelation kind of, and I said at the beginning, how the story begins to end. Look at how John's revelation of the end times begins to look, because it looks like us with a lot more nationalities. It looks like us with a lot different, uh, highly different dressed people. Uh, and he says, after this, I looked, and there before for me was a great multitude and no one could count from every nation every tribe people and language standing before the throne before the lamb see we realize that our differences are all effects uh, aren't just the effects of the fall our differences aren't because sin entered the equation it's all part of God's plan God has ordained diversity in creation. It's a very biblical concept. Crossing social divides economically, culturally, is all part of God's redemptive and restorative plan. Um, and so then, in another chapter, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes, uh, he's in a Greek colony uh, in Athens, and he, and he goes up to Mars Hill, and he's looking at all of the religions, and he gives this the, 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 there's statues to everyone and then there's this one kind of generic statue kind of a um, none of the above it was God the unknown God and so he's like oh this will preach so he sees all the gods of the sun and the water and fertility you know and he's going around and he's like whoa these people are super spiritual um, and then he figures out oh I want to talk about the one that you don't know the name of and then he uses that as a springboard to talk about it but listen to what he says in Acts 17 this is my kind of blow your mind but from one man he's talking about Christ he has made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked them out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands what is Paul saying to the Mars Hill Gentiles what he's saying is that every nation is appointed by Christ 
You being in this epoch of time is not an accident. You being in this culture, you being of this skin in color is, is by God's divine appointment. Every one of us has been appointed in time and history and the boundaries of where you live so that the, no, the nation that you come from or your skin color is all part of God's design. But God affirms diversity. So when we participate with God's plan and cross social divides, we're not going to save people. We're not going necessarily just to, um, to rescue. What we're going in is participating with the fullness of God. So I like to say it this way. I want to use gender as, as an example of this because we have long lived in very patriarchal societies. I even think that in parts of scripture, you can read patriarchy into their scripture. Uh, I believe in strong masculinity. Uh, I think a lot of the feminist movement today is done at the expense of men. I don't think that's the point. But can I say this? I believe we give a lot of masculinity to God. It, it makes sense because of the father and the son, right? There, but God is sort of genderless, although there's a lot of masculine references, there's also feminine references. Whatever gender stereotype you apply to God, whether it be God as comfort, God as nurture, God as protector, God as provider, what I think we see, what I think is most biblical, is that the fullness of God is seen in male and female. And so there's something beautiful about the fullness of God's creation as expressed in both man and women. I would take it a step further. That, and, and by the way, I think women make me better. I, I had some idea that I was working on ahead and there's people in my life that I go to for counsel. I had ideas. I saw Kathy earlier, I said, I need to run this idea by you. And she immediately gave me like the kind of direction I was looking for. I was like, gosh. That's good. That's so good. I need women in my life. But I also need godly men in my life. Now, let's go a step further with that. I think we need diversity in our life. I think we need people who understand that um, faith in God alone is enough. I think that we need people in our lives to realize, oh, what I see as my needs, what I see as sort of my, um, my longings probably need to be recalibrated because I've been living in a very first world Western context with affluence and I actually, I'm actually really well taken care of. And what happens is, is when you experience a faith uh, with people from maybe a different cultural background, who grew up in an oppressive background, who grew up with no religious rights, maybe in military rule, all of a sudden, it starts to speak to you about how you can trust in God alone. And not just in your own cunning, in your own network, in your own wit, in your own sort of net worth. There is something that God is trying to do in peeling away the layers so that when we cross social divides, we're not coming in as the triumphant ones with all of the wealth and all of the answers. We get to come in and actually learn about how to make family more doable or live on a lot less or celebrate small things. 
Um, one of the things I, I love when I, we get together with the Burmese is they are not a gift-giving culture. Can you imagine showing up to a birthday party or a Christmas party and not opening a gift? It wouldn't feel like Christmas. I'm being honest. When my parents sold their family homestead from 1968, five years ago, I was honest. I was like, it feels less like Christmas now. Because I grew up with one living room. And I know that's bad theology. But here's what they got going for them. They're like, we share meals together. We celebrate life together. We bring all the extended friends and family together. When we did the, the baby shower last week, we, you know, we have all these gifts. And Van and Lily start opening gifts. And I go, <laughs> and, and it's sort of like, if this was a present, they're like, <laughs> I was like, Van, have you ever unwrapped a present before? No, never done that before. He's like 30 and he's never opened a present before. I think that I might have a different view of God if I maybe were a little less materialistic. If I was a little, you know what I'm saying? Like we learn how love gets communicated and typically in my home, if my parents skipped my birthday without any gift giving, I would think, whoa, they must be really upset or broke. Like something must be terribly wrong because that's how I've learned how to re receive love. It's part of our salvation. God invites us to cross social divides. That's the mystery that's been made known. That's what Paul's talking about to the Ephesus church. But that's what Peter was dealing with back in, in, in the book of Acts with crossing the Jewish-Gentile divide. And so when we talk about race, it's connected to, but it's distinct from diversity. Diversity is trying to recapture something that God created. Diversity is a God construct to reflect his glory. And the differences reflect the fullness of God. Race is something completely different. Race is a human social construct which opposes God's plan. It requires an artificial social system and it takes perceived physical differences and creates categories from them. And it requires a story about them that be begins to pose a threat. It's tragic that it took about uh, 11 million slaves over 300 years to establish our economy and our caste system in America. Now, you can say there's always been sort of outliers. There's always been the Martin Luther Kings or there's always the Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce in England and the abolitionist movement. Yes. But by and large, it was a country built on oppression with the American slave trade and, and colonization of Native Americans. So we do have a foundation of race, whether we find ourselves as, as racist or not. It's sort of, it, that's why I use the phrase, it's sort of the, the, the sort of secondhand smoke that we've all been kind of breathing in. And I don't want to think that it's affected me, but if I'm honest, it has. I grew up in San Francisco. I felt like a minority many, many times. I was on the receiving end of physical assault because I was white. So it's easy to kind of create some notion that all these kinds of people are this way. Just like you don't like, well, all white people are this way or all Christians act this way. You're like, stop, stop, stop with the straw man argument. Look, can I just read you just to 
I just want to um, spend a little bit more time on this. And this is from Daniel Hill. And he, and he used these four illustrations of how it's kind of been embedded in our country. And then I'll kind of move into the, the rest of this chapter. I want to give you four kind of see how this are. 1860, a senator from Mississippi, Thomas Jefferson, you might have heard of him. He was testifying before Congress. And this is what he said. The government was founded, uh, was not founded by Negroes nor uh, by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. The inequality of white and black races was stamped from the beginning. Stamped from the beginning. As if there's an indelible mark that can't ever be erased. As if God's grace doesn't extend. I'm a man who is deeply flawed. And I hope that my mistakes, my shortcomings, my sin, my foibles, don't leave an indelible mark in your mind but I will let you down. But I'd like to think that God's grace is sufficient for all of us, stamped from the beginning. 1860. Let's go to one of the good guys, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, critical legislation, Emancipation Proclamation. But this is where Lincoln's words were. There's a physical difference between the white and the black races, which I believe will never prevent the two races from ever living together in any social equality. And as much as they cannot live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other, am in favor of having a position of superior assigned to the white race. See, race is just a set of lies. It is a social human construct. Diversity was always part of God's plan to express the fullness of God. And so we have to be able to distinguish what is the beauty of God's fullness in humanity from what is our cultural biases. I want to be a church that is able to get grow increasingly cult, like, comfortable crossing cultural divides, putting ourselves in uncomfortable positions, and even bringing our kids into those same places. That's why I love that we don't do Sunday school, we do lab. And part of that lab is when we go and have a breakfast with the Burmese or when we come over and we, we, we share our events, whether it be Cinco de Bayou or whether it be Lake Day, where we get to actually have fellowship with people that we would never interact with because they don't live in our neighborhood. A couple more, a little more current. Richard Nixon on the Roe versus Wade. This is during the 70s, just passed, and Nixon was checking in uh, when abortion would be okay. This was his, according to him, there was two times when it was okay to have an abortion. When there's a rape or when there's a black and white mixed baby. Now, there was this idea of a one-drop test. If there's one drop of blood, uh, then as, as if the white blood was so pure, that it one drop test means, well, you got the gene. Uh, and so this has just been perpetuated in our society and it subtly creeps into, again, some of our fears, some of our phobias, our, our hesitation, our biases, um, our jokes. Uh, and then lastly, let me just kind of take it back to just a couple years ago. Uh, and again, this is the, the, the ongoing debate today. Uh, and can I just say, I think that there are valid, valid arguments, uh, whether we are a nation of immigrants and we need to speak to the issue of compassion, or we need to make a better case for border security and vetting. I think both of those are valid. I'm not trying to decide, but let me just tell you how uh, incipient this is. And it, Donald Trump 
He said, we don't want immigrants from places like Haiti and Africa. Do you remember what he said? We need immigrants from places like Norway. So says the Scandinavian Norwegian pastor. Really? Now, I know you might be thinking this feels terribly political. Actually, it gets to the core of a theology that we need to begin to embrace. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to, to sway you politically. I'm trying to deepen the conversation theologically so that you might have a better lens to view your neighbors, so that you might have a better lens and filter to hear the media. There's something really important that we need to understand, and Paul's affirming the church at Ephesus because they're getting it right. They're coming together in the fullness of the body of Christ and coming together as one. And oh, by the way, we were the ones that were on the outside. And so let me just kind of wrap things up with this and saying, um, Paul says um, in um, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Oh, I lost my place. There it is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. There's a key word there. What is it? Together. There was something that he, three times in one verse, he's trying to talk about a togetherness. Now he goes on in verse 7 and 8, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the... the, Breach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration um, of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he commanded in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through him and through faith in him, we may approach God, freedom and confidence. Paul starts to become, I became a servant, but he says, I'm the least deserving of all. Why was Paul the least deserving? Because Paul had this indelible reputation as being the greatest antagonist and persecutor of the Gentiles, and now he's called to reach him. Paul, earlier, when he was Saul, was out there tricking people in, creating gathering, hauling them off, imprisoning them, torturing them, killing them for the sake of what he believed was a pure religion for the Jewish people. And now he's trying to overcome his past, overcome his regret, overcome his ignorance, of what was hidden for him, and now he's saying, oh, good God, only God can call me to the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? How do I have any credibility with them? You might feel the least deserving. You might carry with you shame, fear, regret. You might feel the least qualified. God has invited you to proclaim 
the good news and simply the difference that God is making in your life. Don't get caught up on the idea that you have been called to preach as someone who vocationally preaches on Sundays for a living. Preaching is simply telling the difference God is making and be able to articulate a living faith. One of the reasons why I wrote out the rhythms the way I did is I wanted to use everyday non-churchy language so that you can talk about a generous God. You can talk about evangelism in light of the hospitality. You can talk about discipleship by way of apprenticing. You can talk about repentance by how you talk about renewal. You can talk about community in terms of us coming together, not in sameness, but in fullness. There are ways that I'm trying to equip all of us to have a new language. But he said, not only have I given, like, called you to preach, but he says, I've given you a power and authority. That's the calling. And Paul's affirming it in this Gentile church. Well, we're out of time, uh, but we do want to take uh, the Lord's Supper together and, uh, and, and wrap up. And so I'm going to invite the band to just come up. And um, uh, I just want to finish with a couple of thoughts. Um, I said a lot today. And again, you might not be a smoker, but you've been a part of secondhand smoke. Um, our biases often shape us uh, in a way that's inconsistent with the image of God. But Mission Hills is committed to zagging. We choose to zag. Um, we want to... We wanna, church that chooses faith as a lifestyle not just a Sunday go to church and so we need to learn the rhythms and we need to talk about the rhythms and when we do events we need to like think of these as like all hands on deck because this is my opportunity to practice mm -hmm. we want to think of church as an extended family of faith where we come like in our diversity not in our sameness and so we embrace life stages and 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 we, we, we like the, the experience and the perspectives of 20-somethings through 70-somethings. Um, but we want to be committed to crossing social divides. And, and we make awkward look awesome because it is awkward, it is uncomfortable, um, but it's better when we're together. I don't want to do it alone. And so that's what we're committing to together. So as we prepare our hearts for worship, I just want you to consider kind of our calling collectively and uh, our calling individually. Uh, God's work in us, God's work through us. And so let's just prepare our hearts as we uh, go to the communion table tonight.